Well, Tenet broke. In honor of the dawning realization there won't be 2020 theatrical movies, what was the last thing you saw in a theater full of people? Uh, I'm Katie Rich, and the answer is Cats, which means I have yet to see a movie in theaters in 2020, and I probably won't, and I'm going to have to live with that. I am Matt Patches, and technically I saw Birds of Prey in a movie theater, but even though I saw it on opening night, no one was there. It was a completely empty theater. Mm -hmm. Very depressing sight. So I'm going to have to go with the last movie I saw at Sundance, which was Feels Good Man, a documentary coming to VOD very soon. (laughs) Hey, it's me, Dave with a seven, and I think my answer is actually Dead End Drive-In, the 1986, like, B-horror film that I talked about on episode 291, because I was in late February, and I don't think I've been back since. Uh, I am David Ehrlich, and the last movie I saw in theaters was a press screening of the beloved Christian rock biopic, I Still Believe. Uh, and it was uh, the Tuesday before the Sunday when Tom Hanks announced that he had coronavirus and this thing became real for the West. Tom World. Hanks had coronavirus on a Wednesday. <laughs> Is that true? That was I, definitely in the middle of a week. It was definitely in the middle of a week. No. I, it was. No, it wasn't. It was a Sunday night. No, it wasn't. It's the worst argument. I'm looking up a 20... 20- <laughs> I'm looking up a 2020 calendar right now. My it was March 11th, Wednesday. What calendar has Tom Hanks gets COVID-19 on it? No, Vanity I just Fair remember Hollywood the day that it happened. Yeah. Uh, for your record, I remember because my cat died the day before. Oh. So I, that's more memorable than your Christian rock biopic screening. But I remember, I mean, I guess I misremember. Maybe you had a premonition on the Sunday. <laughs> that. Well, that like, <laughs> gave a speech that Sunday night, and I remember it being concurrent with. Yeah, Trump, Trump gave that speech honestly, on a Wednesday. How do any of you remember what Wednesday. happened in March? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I don't remember anything that happened between those two days and now. Yes, okay. this, this is what brought got Brian Williams fired from NBC. Memories get corrupted, <laughs> you know? um, but uh, the, um, I saw. I still believe. I remember on the subway back when we all thought that surface contact was the, the most reliable way to get coronavirus that I was just like holding my hands under my armpits, like fucking Mary. <laughs> and, uh, um, and realized the thing in the entire time that I was risking my life to see, uh, I still well, believe. Do you still believe months later? Christ to, uh, to save me from coronavirus. And yet here I still am alive. Uh, and as far as I know, coronavirus free so my lord and savior pulled me through yet again That's the thing you gotta have the spirit <laughs> inside uh, trump's you. speech was on march 11th 2020 which was a wednesday but i'm at least correctly remembering that it was on the same night as tom hanks announced. yes and that was the same night they canceled the nba season right what a day right, right. <laughs> what a day what a what a lightning <laughs> round <laughs> what a what lightning, lightning round, round. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 309, Pandemic 19. It is the week of Wednesday, July 22nd, 2020. That was the day that in 1959, Ed Wood's Plan 9 from Outer Space opened in theaters full of people. Maybe not so full of people, <laughs> no. but they had the option to be in theaters to see Plan 9 from Outer Space. Something you I guys want to see the new Bela Lugosi movie? Let's go. 
It opens tonight. Yeah. Somewhere the Daves of 1959 were definitely doing that. He insisted it played in theaters. It was not going to go to VOD, no matter how little interest there was. <laughs> Topical. Uh, here we have reviews, David. We do indeed, Katie. Thank you for that prompt. Uh, we have two reviews. One from Mir K. Stam, who says, writing this review to lie to myself about having accomplished something today. Well, we are happy to help. Uh, <laughs> I know that feeling. Am I right? Hi, Dave Seven, David Patches, and Katie. I've been a Fitware listener for a couple of years now and have never heeded the request to write a review until now. Sorry. I live in Florida, and although our economy is open with scare quotes, read Ron DeSantis is a coward and a moron who can take no decisive action to head off the spread of COVID-19, I have been limiting my non-essential outings for the better part of the past four months. So although I am physically healthy mentally, I am physically healthy. Mentally, I have been better. But my beloved podcasts, obviously this one included, are keeping me kind of sane. I'm not really interested in unpacking why pop culture culture is so soothing, but it is an undeniable bomb right now. I love your dynamic and chemistry as hosts, and I think you are all integral to the magic of fighting in the war room. I never know what Dave Seven is going to say, but I'm delighted every time he opens his mouth. And he is so intentional with everything he says. David and Patches both have such deep convictions and entrenched opinions about the media they consume, which makes it so fun when they argue. Fuck you, Patches. No matter who I agree with, and at least for me, Katie is the heart of the podcast. Maybe because my life experience aligns the most with hers or my taste, in parentheses, movies about men having feelings forever, but her presence (laughs) so perfectly. I feel silly about how long this has gone, but seriously, thank you guys from the bottom of my heart for this podcast. And everyone, please talk about your kids as much as you want. Hearing about Ace's new big boy energy delighted me to no end last week. I don't week. like this review that. Very helpful. <laughs> uh, Asa definitely has big boy energy. He's a full-blown little kid right now. But mere Patrick, case- you just don't understand big boy energy. No, I never have. <laughs> I still do not. Mere case, Dan, I need to tell you something about Florida's elected officials. Uh, I have to remember what Senator Rick Scott, of course, Rick Scott. So Rick Scott, your beloved Senator, a human Skeletor who was brought, you know, breathed life into by a demented uh, tea party, Geopetto, whatever. (laughs) I actually do not know the taxonomy of Skeletor, but so Ron Skeletor, Rick Scott, uh, I went to high school with his daughter in Connecticut um, and uh, he and their whole family was so deeply terrifying, even to me as a 16-year-old. And now my friend who dated his daughter while we were all in high school uh, is convinced that Rick Scott is going to be running for president because that is the next logical step for a uh, you know vile, ethic-free, multi-hundred millionaire to take at this juncture in his life who has no real political convictions but only wants to amass power. So look forward to that. Uh, but know that you will have an ally in fighting in the war room to roll their eyes and vomit projectilely at everything that he does along the way. Uh, Rick Scott, boy. Um, in the mood for sleep says, I appreciate you. I've been meaning to write a review for the last couple of years, and thanks to the pandemic, I finally have time. I discovered the pod via David, who I became a fan of when one day I noticed him harassing Zach Braff on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> my, my halcyon days on the internet. 
I love all four hosts and find immense comfort checking in each week with all of you. An old Fighting in the War Room segment I find myself returning to is the unbreakable sunshine of an Ehrlich mine from 2015. In this segment, David, apparently our segments have names, or maybe this name was just provided by In the Mood for Sleep. Uh, David recounts a recent snowy vacation in Montauk that ends them running into one Rod Patches. On top of the fact that Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is my favorite movie, tied with broadcast news, obviously, there's something about this mm-hmm. segment that I find extremely warm and comforting. I often find myself returning to it in times of anxiety and uncertainty. And I just wanted to let you all know that I'm very thankful for that episode. Fighting in the War Room was especially therapeutic for me last year as I listened to every episode while I was working on the movie Frozen 2. As someone who gets very stressed out at work about doing the best job I can, I found immense comfort hearing David very frequently call Frozen a crime against cinema, humanity, etc. It was a good reminder that work is never worth sacrificing your mental health for, That's right. especially when it's frozen. You know, I don't know if uh, I am qualified to call it on my own, but that may be the best review we've ever gotten. <laughs> it's pretty good review. And it ended with a very positive message. Do not overindulge in your work. I love it. Do not make your life your work. Yeah. And so, and someone hearing us diss something that they worked on, taking that as a reason not to overinvest in their work, that is a lovely thing. Well, they worked on Frozen 2. Well, David I hope they're still listening because my pandemic check-in is going to be the making of Frozen 2 on Disney+. Plus. So we'll be oh, back to that later on. Uh, well, thank you all for uh, leaving reviews. Calling Rick Scott's daughter deeply terrifying is already not sitting well with me, though she was she, she was quite a character. But I tend to think that that was more Rick Scott's than Rick Scott's. How are you back on that? Because uh, you know, I, I, a beautiful I, review. I, now we're back. To I like that. this. I like this pattern where it's like David approaches a bear trap. We're all like, he's not going to step in that bear trap. He strides confidently into the bear trap. <laughs> we all continue on without him, and then like five minutes later, he's like, guys, I stepped in a bear trap. Wait, you saw this bear <laughs> trap coming? Yes, because you you're like, let's talk about Rick Scott for a second. I'm like, fighting in the war room is not that podcast. <laughs> Oh, there should, there should, I don't know what sound a bear trap makes other than like the when it closes. Yeah, that, yeah, that's we'll just do that to you every time you walk into a bear trap. Yeah, uh, I want to declare that, uh, in, in 2002, Master the, Masters of the Universe established that Skeletor was once a man named Keldor whose face was accidentally splashed with acid. He survived by summoning a dark entity who saved his life, but it cost him his entire face. So you learn something, so human Skeletor redundant. Um, yep. but. But thank you to all uh, Skeletor prompts and non uh, who <laughs> are leaving us reviews on iTunes at Fighting in the War Room. Uh, please leave us a review there. We'll read it on the show, especially if you worked on Frozen. <laughs> Chris Nolan gave up on Tenet. I guess Warner Brothers gave up on Tenet. No one sure gave up on this to happen. Tenet. Well, Tenet is not coming out the in August. It might not come out this Tenet. year. Yes. The coronavirus saw its shadow. It means we have uh, at least six more months of pandemic. Uh, and as Dave Dave uh, declared in a recent episode, the pandemic will not be over until Tenet is in American theaters. At least, you know, it won't be over for uh, for Americans. Um, and so we are we are in for the long haul. <laughs> yep, it's, I'm not. I'm not sure who didn't expect this to happen, but uh, it seems like we all are having a reaction to it anyway. 
I feel like indefinite is the thing here where it's like, I was expecting this to happen, but I honestly thought we'd be in like October where it's like, we're literally up against what we previously discussed is the release deadline for the um, Academy Awards. It's been pushed back to like February, like where people are going to try to, you know, see what they get in the theatrical year. I thought we'd be in like October, November before Tenet was like, nah, but it's not indefinite. Mm. That's not the word that Warner Brothers used. They, they are, I believe, the wording of the WB press release, which is a story into itself. Not that it's one that I know, uh, is that they are still pursuing a 2020 release. Yes. Exactly. Um, and you know, the next conversation we're going to have, maybe as soon as next week's episode, is going to be sort of picking up the slack of what we were talking about last week, about how they may release it internationally first and have to find some other means of getting it out here in the United States, or maybe they'll simply just make us wait. Um, but I think they'll make uh, us it, wait. I mean, I, that's the implication. I would think so. That was the implication in the, in the press release and all the back, like on background murmuring. It sounds like China or the UK, that could happen. And then. Well, China has a difficulty of their own because they are not currently allowing movies longer than two hours to screen in theaters because at a certain point, I guess it gets more dangerous or the thinking goes to keep people in a closed ventilated, unventilated room rather uh, and tenant, which runs two hours and 50 minutes or thereabouts. Uh, it doesn't make the cutoff. And I highly doubt it would make any sense if you remove 30 minutes from that movie. <laughs> that I haven't seen Just based on its director's previous work, that feels like a safe assumption. So China, the more limit on movies feels like a real, like, okay. Like rearranging the light posts on the Titanic kind of thing. Like how it, once sure. you're in there in the, in the like air conditioned space, like it, it's still likely to get you anyway. I feel like the capitalist view would be just make a tenant part one and a tenant part two, and you make them pay for the tickets twice. Yeah. Quibi is still like around, a, people. Uh... Quibi is the answer here. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> also how films. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's that's typically how films are screened in India, where there is a, an abrupt intermission in the middle of the movie. They don't charge double admission, but you might be able to get away with that in China, or simply fudge the ruling there and exactly like screen the first hour and change of the movie, kick everyone out of the theater, fumigate the place and bring them back in for the rest. I don't know. But those are two pretty big box offices, China and the United States that are going to be out of the equation for the next little while, at least. Um, so, so you think they might not release it internationally at all? I no, I think, I mean, they, Warner brothers has been rec- full steam ahead to the point of recklessness throughout this entire process, just kicking the can down the field um, in, in the hopes, I guess, of keeping, a, some sort of delusional optimism going, and B, tenant in the conversation as the bellwether for when all movies are going to reopen. But it's also uh, the hope that theaters will remain open, right? You know, spring Q, uh, Q2 for the AMC, the largest theater chain in America, was was bleak, man. They were losing millions and millions and millions of dollars just by being closed. Yeah, and now they will, con- if they don't have target dates and things to open up in theaters, they will remain closed and they will continue to crater. Well, they shouldn't have target dates. I mean, they need some sort of government assistance. I can't, I can't divine, you know, what's going to happen. I know that NATO's response today talking about how, you know, it's the same sort of rhetoric. That NATO, you know, NATO the, being the yeah. national association <laughs> of theater owners, not the whatever other NATO is. Uh, where you have, <laughs> whatever the other and, NATO is. Fuck the one that are What does the other NATO stand for? North American Trade Organization? Right? North Atlantic, I believe. Right? Fuck that NATO. 
all about the, we're all about the NATO yeah. movie theaters. This is <laughs> I a, a movie podcast. What the other NATO stood for? But the rhetoric was very similar to to the people who were you know typically on the right side of the aisle or or the, the right wing side of the aisle. Anyway, pushing towards um, opening schools because it just seemed like the economically desperate action to take, uh, and the theaters don't particularly care about their safety. They may have some sort of false confidence that they'll be able to keep people safe indoors there. But as we've seen in other countries that have done better at containing the virus and have reopened for periods of time, like China, like Hong Kong. Um, let's not get into a conversation about whether or not those are the same country. Uh, and uh, other places in Barcelona, um, which is not a country at all, uh, we, we've seen that theaters that have opened have then had to shutter uh, and roll back yeah. because uh, they've only been safe for so long, they've been resurgent in the virus. And so I, I think the sort of stutter step, one step forward, two steps back, approach is is really harmful all around um and i wish that there were some i wish you know organizationally this country were at all confident in preparing for a crisis of this magnitude but that uh people were able to sort of um you know if we were all responsible well we're mass uh if this weren't such a political fucking street fight then we would be able to have a more realistic target date when theaters could reopen but uh we don't we can't and it's irresponsible to claim otherwise it's also like when when this is happening at the same time as the debate around reopening schools and like if we close everything else we might be able to reopen schools so it almost feels like like the movie theater industry is important and valid but like schools are so much more important and the fact that like we have to choose between them is bullshit but we do and so no one should be focusing on schools at this or at, on theaters at this point when schools are such a bigger question yeah the time to uh decide you know what we wanted back uh and focus on it we fucked that up as a nation yep we chose bars and we chose beaches and we chose gyms and we didn't wear masks and we fucked it up. Every single person you see on the street not wearing a mask is someone who doesn't want you to see Christopher Nolan's tenant. Absolutely. So <laughs> just think about that uh, as you're walking around and, and hopefully the fire is rising within you. Uh, I, your anger. Actually, that's your an extreme. That's an extreme. Um, and you should uh, yell at them from a safe distance. Uh, What's an extreme pass? It'd be like how uh, Disney wouldn't open gun- Disney wouldn't open Avengers till we had gun control. Like Chris Reynolds won't open Tenet Lover and wears a fucking mask. I'm saying <laughs> the the New York experience is is way different. Like when we're out in the burbs, we can walk very safely, more much more than six feet away from people without masks. I don't find myself screaming across the street yelling. So wait, at people wait, 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 masks, wait, but wait. I but I am saying patches. Yeah. You were going to wear a mask during this podcast to promote mask wearing. And we were like, hey, don't do that. This is a podcast. But you're also saying, like, I also feel safe going outside without a mask. Specifically asked you to mention that he wanted to wear a mask during this episode because he wanted the act. Accolades. I, I mostly yeah. just wanted to talk like Bane, awful Bane, um, into my oh. microphone. No, I'll, I'll, with all I'm, saying, just, I'm with, with a, you on the. I'm with you on the outdoor mask. Wearing. Thank you. You're not crazy. Yeah, all I'm saying about masks is is we, we unhelpful all need, opinions. It's actually not. At this it's actually not an unhelpful opinion. It's a rational I think opinion. It is. I know. I'm with Dave on this. Even I know you are because maybe. you live in New York in a highly dense area, and I would no, not go outside in New York without my mask on. You take this seriously and believe that you have the ability to self-police because of where you live and the distance you keep from other people. It's, you know, furthering the fact for the masses of idiots out there, not our listeners, of course, who are by and large brilliant, but the average person in America putting that thought 
out there that they are capable of self-policing, I think is uh, very I, don't, I actually wrong. don't, because I think in this really difficult, difficult, difficult time that you can feel self, you can self-flagellate so much and you can feel so horrible about every single second and, and punish yourself um, that trying to figure out how to be the most responsible is, is acceptable. And like being able to take a deep, fresh breath of air uh, while you're walking around your neighborhood when no one's around is totally fine. David, you, you are totally living a different experience than every other person on this podcast. I'm not arguing with your experience. I'm not arguing. I'm not the, saying the, go inside. I'm not saying dine in anywhere. Yeah, but you're not. Okay, listening but you're saying you're, you're smart enough, listener, to know when to wear a mask, and we're right. saying most people they're, are not, not. Apparently. So the dangerous thing that you're saying is me, Matt Patches, a person who does not have any sort of medical degree or training, is like I want to go. I'm I want to go outside. Doctor Patches, thank you. I want to go outside, not in my backyard, and take a breath the breath of fresh air rather than put on a mask and be a visual signal to everybody who might see me from a distance, even that they should be wearing a mask outside. Katie understands what I'm talking sense. about here. And I, I also and I also do. give credit to our listeners for being intelligent people who know when to put their masks on, which is 90% of the time. Certainly if I'm going out anywhere in a ma- in like where there are multiple people, I'm wearing a mask. Um, sure. Listen, our listeners are geniuses. Every yes. single one of them passed the cognitive test. It gets very difficult Katie, towards the end. Katie, chime in here. <laughs> David, stop talking. Put on a mask. Actually, put on the muzzle. Maybe you need to go the one step further here. Again, patches. The, oh, com- putting those two things together in a sentence is unhelpful rhetoric at this time. Agreed. I don't. Putting mask and muzzle together. I have started- very funny joke. Not helpful to what we're trying well, not, to say. I'm not, I'm not joking about it. But. Okay. I mean, I have started wearing a mask on my neighborhood walking pass, even though most people do not wear masks on the neighborhood walking pass. Precisely because of what Dave was talking about, that it feels like a visual signal to people to take it seriously, or to other people to gesture to them that I take their health seriously. Um, but what if I take a walk in the neighborhood where the streets are like that's all like 20 I'm feet wide or whatever? That's all I'm I don't saying. I, I only threw Patches under the bus because he literally tried to do this podcast with a mask on and then was like, <laughs> sometimes you could not wear a mask. But, and I'm like, this, but also, I Dave, I think I'm with you that like talking about the times when you don't necessarily need to wear a mask is not nearly as important it's as just helpful. saying wear a mask, wear a mask, wear a mask. Yeah. Okay. I'm not but coming on here to be like, live your the life street and, in my neighborhood. Yeah. I, I'm if not someone, like, advocating saw me standing for like outside my house and yelled at me to wear a mask. I'd be mad. Oy vey. I am, I'm not. I'm not yelling at people yet, except patches because I've earned that. <laughs> get it. Get it. Get it on yourself. Yell at me. Yell at me. I'm. I am. Um, I'm feeling. Uh, I guess I'm just happy about where I live right now, where New Jersey is like going way, way down in cases, and we're doing it right. Like every, if I go to the grocery store, we're all wearing masks. If we're going to town, we're all wearing masks. Right. Um. This is. This is. It, the system working so i do feel this kind of like sense of pride that um and and it's sad to like hear stories from friends in texas and hear stories from friends in florida and around and california like california exploding and a family out there and just like the fact that they're still trapped and they're still like really on edge and i have great sympathy for for david being in one of the most densely populated areas uh in the world and i would feel a lot more scared um and i'm not i'm not trying to convince people that there's a there's wiggle room here to not wear your mask i'm saying um if you have 10 seconds to walk down your block without a mask on maybe do that certainly the potential for fear here is quite high and you know in march in new york things were very tense but uh i will say by and large it's reflected by the city's uh 
coronavirus numbers in the past few weeks. People here have been very, very responsible, which does not mean that when I walk down to Cal Avenue on a weekend afternoon, uh, I'm not seeing hundreds of people having lunch outside on top. Well, that's of what I don't get. I, so but, I think there's terrifying. a big difference here, and this and this is what we were scared about with Tenet, right? Like going trying to go back to normal doesn't make any sense. Try, like even people, you know, people I know are having lunch outside at restaurants, like. There's the, the social distancing. Six feet is not very far apart. It, I feel paranoid sitting around I mean, in that. Like, you won't find me doing that um, with or without yeah, a mask. We know. In, in addition to it being more – being safer and more responsible, I also – and this – you know, mileage will vary on this. I find it easier to grin and bear the, the quarantine – if it's an all or nothing thing, if I, if I start hmm. chipping away and saying I can eat at a restaurant outside and I can see friends, uh, I can have friends over to my apartment. If they sit on the other side and we keep the windows open and I start chipping away and trying to claw back into a life as we knew it, I think it but will that's a, there's a make difference it, there. It's not trying to claw back I, to the I mean, world. I don't get that. At it's all. not, I'm it's not, not trying to claw back to the world that we knew. It's trying to figure out how to adjust to the world that we are while thinking about our mental health too. Trying to find ways to do this for another year. Yeah, mental health is important. That's the tricky thing. For for me, not that I've been in a great mental state, uh, but I think that has more to do with trying to juggle raising a small child. Yeah, I don't know uh, anything about that. Uh, Yeah, I know. um, But, uh, uh, you know, it's, um, (laughs) it's, uh, you know, I'll spare you a tangent about the difficulty, how much harder it is as a writer than a manager. Katie and Patches, but uh, the wow! I don't. I, yeah, clearly, I do no writing at all. Uh, I didn't. I didn't publish a, uh, a gigantic profile written I'm gonna, half while I had a child or anything. I'm going to bring a motion to the floor. I'm going to bring a motion to the floor. To the floor. Close this this tenant segment. <laughs> yes. Talk about a book for a little bit, and then get back to this for pandemic check in uh, proper. But tenant, see it in theaters. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah, tenant. You know, then we'll know the pandemic's over. Charlie Kaufman book? Yeah, David. Kaufman book. Um, you know, someone who I think is probably doing about as well during the pandemic as I am, <laughs> judging by the lengthy New York Times profile I recently read about him, uh, is Charlie Kaufman, the screenwriter of such films as Being John Malkovich and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, later director of Synecdoche, New York, Anomalisa, and the upcoming I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which has become the bleakest subject matter of an email that I regularly am sending back and forth with someone in all capital letters. It always feels like a cry to help with the publicity department and Netflix. <laughs> but uh, he has written a novel, and a very lengthy novel at that, it is called Ant Kind. It is now publicly available. Uh, I have read all 720 pages, whatever it amounted to, on my e-reader. The first book that I've ever read, I think, cover to cover on an iPad, because that is the only way I can get my hands on it. I uh, did not like that experience or that part of the experience anyway. Um, but Ant Kind is, uh, I'd say the biggest difference between a Charlie Kaufman novel and a Charlie Kaufman movie is that the Charlie Kaufman novel is a book written in words, whereas a movie 
is a uh, is a movie in succession of images. Okay, fascinating. And it's less, fascinating. You're saying there's not there's not one, so uh, it disappears of its own, but <laughs> uh, trying to deconstruct itself it, as a it novel. It is very much a logical continuation of the the kind of storytelling that we saw in Synecdoche, New York, most of all. Uh, although certain self referential ticks that have defined his career as a as a writer and a director are evident throughout. It is a story about a, uh, I would say Richard Brody. Oh, I don't want to mean Richard Brody who is referenced by name in this book, uh, but uh, certainly his beard and, and uh, his love of Jean-Luc Godard reminds me of Richard Brody, but a, a, a film critic named B. Rosenberger Rosenberg, who will at every opportunity remind you that he is not Jewish, uh, although he is performatively woke, in a way that ties himself into knots and, of course, bends back into a lot of racist and anti-Semitic tics. Uh, and B. Rosenberger Rosenberg is uh, an insufferable type who is searching for some sort of validation, some sort of meaning for his life, wants the acclaim that he has heaped upon a select few movies over the years. And he comes upon it in a Henry Darger-like piece of outsider art, a three-month-long film that he discovers uh, in Florida it's a long story. I mean, it's already a long story. And this is the first few pages of a 700-page novel. But he watches this three-month-long film, which he believes is this uh, incredible masterpiece that folds time in and on itself and locates the meaning of life. It's all stop-motion animation. There are a lot of references to Anomalisa. Uh, and shortly after finishing watching the movie for the first time, the first of seven viewings he plans on having, uh, he stops at a fast food restaurant called Slammy's, which ends up growing into an Amazon-like mega corporation that is waging wars and trying to rule the world. Uh, and uh, while he's there, the truck carrying all the film burns up. Uh, he burns up along with it, gets uh, facial reconstructive surgery, give him a phallic-like nose that only makes him look more Jewish, much to his consternation. Uh, and he begins trying to, like a Tenacious D song, remember the greatest film ever forgotten, which includes a lot of delirious hypnosis sessions. Uh, the, the, the book spirals out of control from there. There are long stories about Donald Trump watching his robot wax Disney clone jerk off next to him inside of the White House. Uh, that is just one of, there's a whole thread about Zappos and inter-scene rivalry at Zappos. Uh, there is all sorts of, of self-deprecating red meat for movie fans. Charlie Kaufman is identified by name as one of B. Rosenberger Rosenberg's nemeses many, 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 many times. Um, his opinions on uh, all sorts of filmmakers in the work over the years, some real and some fictional, are hilarious uh, a lot funnier than a lot of the sort of weak tea, but almost almost weak enough that it bends back around being funny again, satire about sort of uh, modern political correctness. And, uh, you know, B. Rosenberger, Rosenberg invents his own pronoun, Don, that he uses to apply to everyone and is rushing to tell people about his African-American girlfriend, which is exactly what he calls her. But then in a very, very funny twist. Uh, it turns out to be a very real person, um, a particular black woman, um, which is something that I did not see coming. Uh, and uh, such and so. But like, just to give a, you know, this is a book that that is like a lot of Charlie Coffin's work about the absurdity of being alive and trying to find meaning about um, the, uh, the, just the, the confluence of messages that we all receive, trying to, 
in vain remain the protagonist of our own story and feeling like we need to empathize with other people and the distances between us and how it becomes this sort of performative farce. Uh, but one, <laughs> one line that I thought you guys might appreciate, which comes very early in the novel when in this, you know, Haruki Murakami novel narrated by Jeff Wells style approach before it completely slides off the rails, uh, and, and uh, inverts and goes into parallel dimensions and past and amended futures and ant kings and things like that. Um, that could still make sense. He calls his editor and he says, I've stumbled upon the greatest filmic masterpiece of perhaps all time, including future time. I feel confident. And I didn't just add future time to be hyperbolic. There is a reason. And his editor just says, not again. <laughs> <laughs> I thought as a film critic, uh, you felt seen. I felt, well, this is not a book in which you want to feel seen as a film critic. Uh, and I think is sort of a bear trap of a novel for film critics to read and critique. Um, (laughs) but there are just as many moments where it feels all too real as there are when you can sort of breathe a sigh of relief that you don't see yourself in the character that he's creating. But I think eventually we all sort of do and don't. Um, but it's, uh, it's a hell of a read. It's a roller coaster. There are definitely large, large, uh, chunks of it that, uh, particularly the, the film within a film stuff that is half remembered and invented. And we never really are able to tell the difference that a whole thing about this invented Abbott and Costello, like vaudevillian comedic duo named Mud and Malloy that my eyes glazed over every time they appeared. Um, the last 200 pages of the book are set in a post apocalyptic underground cave ruled by, uh, Trump aka trunk laser, uh, robots who shoot lasers from their eyeballs and fly around and he has sex with all of them as he's going backwards and forwards in time. And as I mentioned, there are uh, there is a uh, all-knowing ant from the future named Calcium who he desperately wants to be friends. I mean, these are things that just sort of happen over the course of someone's life. Um, David, you and, have not uh, made me want to read this book at all. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think... I can't tell if, if you think I should read it. If you think I should read it. That's a I good don't. question. I, I think uh, if anything in my rambling thoughts about this so far have not appealed to you, and I I don't suspect that they would, uh, and that's in the royal you, um, I wouldn't go out of your way to read it. But if you if you saw Synecdoche, New York, and responded to it and sort of how the butter slides off the back uh, in that movie and sort of appreciated how it sort of, uh, you know, tucked into itself and spiraled deeper and deeper into the folds of his own imagination, you will probably appreciate how Antkind unfolds and the rather sanguine ending that it eventually arrives at, um, but which is unexpectedly touching in its own abstract way. But if everything this everything that I described to you sounds like, you know, Kaufman sticking his head up his own asshole, which I think is probably a criticism he would happily entertain, um, even if he took it to heart, uh, maybe avoid it and save yourself for his upcoming Netflix movie. I'm thinking of ending things starring the one and only Jesse Buckley and also Jesse Plemons, who is also good. <laughs> um, but there's only one Jesse Buckley, which is on Netflix September 4th. And I have yet to see, and I'm very excited, excited about it, uh, which is not something I can say about many movie related things on the horizon, but Ant kind a book, uh, everything I just said about it is true. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh a, That's how we should end every segment.
guys. Uh, as you've already heard, we're kind of uh, getting ready to do a pandemic check-in and have a lot of issues about safety. Casey's got a crazy story, and I went up and did the dumb thing of promising exactly what mine was at the top of the show, not knowing the form of the show. So here we go. In like three minutes, I watched the making of Frozen 2 on Disney+. Plus. It is a docu-series that takes like six episodes. The first two are around like 40 three 48 minutes the last one is down to 28 it's sort of diminishing as it goes down but in terms of making of disney documentaries disney animated films there hasn't been uh one of these i've enjoyed uh this much since probably waking sleeping beauty which was six or seven years ago maybe um and then before that disney just straight up didn't make documentaries about itself they would do behind the scenes looks they would do you know animation studio tours but nothing about like the disney method of sort of ripping things up and remaking it uh there was a movie called the sweat box which documented uh them sort of tearing up emperor's new groove from a movie called the sun king uh, the sweat yeah, the sweat box was directed by sting's uh wife uh and hmm. they I believe uh, it's screened at uh, some film festival. I, th- I feel it's like Sundance. Trudy, Trudy Styler? Uh, yeah, that sounds correct. Uh, That's Sting's wife. The documentary aired uh, once. Disney bought it to vault it, and there's never been a final cut released. You can find the uh, rough cut of it on YouTube. I just looked. Uh, someone's been uploading it. Again, every couple of months when Disney takes it down. I don't know why Disney doesn't put it on Disney+. Plus. It's a great documentary because it Dave, shows... Oh, go ahead. So can I just ask you two quick questions? Yeah. Uh, one, are you excited for Disney Plus's forthcoming documentary about Howard Mencken? Yes. Also and because I want to see how much... Howard Ashman. Uh, Alan, Whatever. Uh, you, Who's you, Mencken? Alan, Alan Mencken. Alan Mencken. Yeah, Howard Ashman. I have Voltron them together into one superconductor. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> accurate. Two... Do you think that there's any chance that you saw our beloved listener in the mood for sleep at any point in the Frozen 2 docuseries? Well, probably because the last image is the entire crew shot in front of uh, the Disney Animation mm. Building, which I hope would include this person. But what I do like about this documentary and having you know being a fan of Disney documentaries is like Pixar, the new Disney animation will tear stories apart continuously and put them back together and try to get the best possible thing. I haven't actually seen Frozen 2, so I was watching a making of documentary for a movie that I hadn't seen yet. And that actually kind of helped because I didn't know how certain uh, arguments and things were going to turn out. Uh, there were some surprises. There were some uh, musical tension. But it's uh, unlike something like their making of the Mandalorian series, this is a Disney documentary that takes the time and I think chooses its subjects very specifically and follows just a few stories that become the story of the entire movie. So yes, we stop off with the effects director and yes, we stop off with like the guy making the reindeer models, but we're also following, you know, one young animator as she animates like an Elsa shot and a reindeer shot. And we're following the directors and the songwriters and getting into their personal feelings around this film. It's a very interesting look at how animated films were made. I think at some point uh, towards the end of post-production, They had something like 400 artists and each artist was expected to get like two minutes on screen. And those artists had been working for on average, like four years. And so just imagine having the money to make that animation machine. Uh, It's really fascinating to watch it work. And I think uh, as 
uh, is unusual for Disney, but seems to be a direction they're going in. They're showing some warts. Like, I would really love a treatment of this to actually show what happened to the Star Wars sequel trilogy uh, that, you know, mm, acknowledges God. production breaks and stuff. But yeah, and I was I was just thinking yesterday for some reason that I would love to do an honest interview with J.J. Abrams at some point where really the one and only question was what the fuck went wrong? <laughs> like what, what, sir, what series of disastrous decisions led to, you know, one of the most catastrophic. Well, not even there, but like, even if you just take it from the very real stance where it's like you came in, they had to justify spending $4 billion. You did it. And then you came back to like mess it up. Like, what was the difference between those two processes? Anyway, not important. Making a Frozen 2, I think it's worth your time, especially if you're interested in animation, especially if you're interested in a level of animation that very few people get to glimpse because it's just like you could throw money at a problem until it goes away. Uh, really interesting. But I would like to I see it because I don't think the story of Frozen 2 is especially good. And I would love to know what decisions they made to jettison the worst parts or how it wound up in this weird, like Frozen oh, 2 yeah. and Toy Story 4, I think both had the same problem where it's like, how many scripts did you mash together to get this final story? There's a great thing where it's like they're two weeks out before their, fi- their first audience screening and they still haven't decided if the voice calling Elsa is her mom or not. Wow. Like that's like a a huge weird debate that they have, but yeah, no, maybe check out a, a couple of minutes, see if it's worth your while. It's uh, on Disney plus right now, but I'm also going to throw to Katie. Cause Katie, you, uh, you had a crazy pandemic week. Yeah. Uh, coronavirus came to my, my family and my house because, uh, the week that I was gone on vacation, I was with my parents. And while we were with my parents, my mom started feeling sick and she was not super sick. And, but she and my dad went and got COVID tests, what we thought was a big precaution. We all went home. That was a Thursday the following Wednesday. So six days later, if you're counting, she came back positive. We were all at our various homes. We all scrambled to get tests. We were all supposed to be going to the beach together uh, the next week. That trip is no longer happening. Um, and my husband, Michael, and I have still not been tested because our doctors told us because we weren't showing symptoms, we couldn't, uh, that there was just no reason to. Our kids managed to get tests, uh, taking kids to get COVID tests. Patches, did you get on our COVID tests? Have you guys done anything at all? No. I mean, we haven't really Patches, had a reason right. to, to do that. We've been stuck at home. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, we are no not back in full. That, that just because you weren't showing symptoms, there would be no reason to get a test. I mean, isn't uh, isn't asymptomatic transition proven? Isn't I mean, it's just well, one of I the mean, many failures, uh, systematic failures yeah, of this entire yeah. process. And what? Well, like, right. so at this point, like, since we found out my mom tested positive, it's been like almost a week. We have been fully locked down. Like, we have not gone anywhere, done anything. Like, my kids had been in daycare, which was the real reason we freaked out because they could have been transmitting it. Um, so when they we got their test results on Sunday, they got it was like forty eight hours. They are tested negative, so that huge concern is gone. Um. But yeah, like, I mean, we're, I don't really feel a strong need for us to get tested still because we're still fully quarantined. By Friday, it will have been two weeks. We're scheduled to get tests on Thursday. It feels kind of pointless. Like, that'll be almost full two weeks after our last exposure. Should we even still get those tests if they're so hard to come by? I genuinely don't know. I mean, and they don't know how long it would last, right? I I think what's interesting is, like, the antibody test. I got antibody tested because I thought Mm. that uh, we got it back in March, like, right away. Um, And then I didn't have antibodies. And then almost right after I 
got that test and appeared negative, I was just reading so much about how the antibodies could go away. And that was people we know, um, actually, who I will not name on the podcast, but people we know got tested for antibodies, had it, and then got tested for antibodies like a month later and did not have them. Well, so who knows what the hell's going on? Everything is crazy. But is the antibody test reliable enough? Like, do we know that there was a false positive rather than the antibodies went away? We don't know if the antibodies are going away or if simply the overwhelming volume of false positives on those tests are, or false negatives um, are, are giving the impression that they are. It's very unreliable. I mean, yeah. and, and I mean, the, I think and, anyone who no, no one can really put much stock in having antibodies. Um, and with my family, so my mom is doing much better. She doesn't have a fever anymore. She was home the whole time, never had trouble breathing. Like it was a very unscary version of having COVID, as you know, as unscary as it can be, because it was still pretty stressful. Um, but I keep thinking, like, okay, if this is how my family goes through this, then like, all right, that's fine. But all I keep thinking about is like, this is just going to happen again. Like, I don't know when we're all going to get together again. This was obviously really shitty and scary, but. Uh, Every family is going to go through some version of this at some point in the next year. It, like, well, I'm grateful that this version was as mild as it was, but yeah. there will probably be another one. I'm thinking about something that David said earlier on the podcast uh, before he was uh, saying that writers have it harder than managers, which is one of the fucking <laughs> dumbest actually, things. Just one of the dumbest things. No, no, no. David has <laughs> David has a point. We no, David does not have a point. People with I only one child work. obviously have it harder than people that's, with two. There you go. We can agree but on yeah. that. Um, I do a lot of work on my phone that's answering emails. I think David can't. That's all. Well, some of us do it all. I guess that's what – being a renaissance man is really hard during the COVID era. I do my writing after bedtime, obviously. That's very that's very gracious of you, Katie. I appreciate um, that. No, da- it's hard. Something David said uh, before was that in a perfect world – we would have all locked down completely, iron bars up, like keep us inside and it would go away. And David, I think it's become harder and harder to really do that because of the systematic failures on so many different levels. One, there was no plan. Two, there's no plan for testing. Three, there's no plan. There's no like messaging to the whole country. Just stay in for X amount of time and we can like eventually overcome this. And it's so scattered that we're kind of being forced to like dip a toe into uh, normalcy. I put that in quotes because I, I don't, again, I don't really see like being somewhat normal as being old normal. There's the new normal. Um, and I, I just, for mental health reasons, I think people will, the, the dams will break for a lot of people or, and they'll have to try find ways to interact with family or interact with uh, other people in their orbit. I won't even say friends because they may not be able to reach their friends, but it's just, a, it's really a tough situation because of the, the government failures because of the systematic failures. I was listening to a story today about how one of the, the countries that's really solved COVID on a, on a big way is Rwanda. Um, often considered like a, a kind of a low income country is how NPR described them earlier today but they are testing people on the streets like if you are walking on the streets in rwanda it's very possible you'll get tested for covid on the street while you're walking around like they have a system yeah they have a system set up to do this and how can like real life is banging at our door every day Uh, and and people can only like their mental state can only be in lockdown for so long. Uh, there's so many different types yeah. of health concerns here. And I'm, I'm not saying that one is a priority over let, you know, over trying to stop the pandemic, but like uh, Netflix can only keep you glued to your seat for so long. Well, and like, 
with my family, like, we weren't perfectly quarantined, but, like, we kept the kids out of daycare a week before we went. Like, my yeah. mom and my dad were wearing masks and, like, doing all the essential errands. And it seems pretty certain my mom got it playing tennis, which has been listed as, like, one of, like, like golf. Like, it's supposed to be one of those activities you can right. do. It's outside. It's supposed to be safe. And it wasn't. Um, and it's not like I, I don't think we should get like a gold medal for like trying a little bit to lock down beforehand. Like obviously there were risks involved and it just came around to us. But like you were saying, like I, I can't go a year without seeing my family. Like I'm not going right. to. And so right. it's about calculating or, or going back to daycare, which like we have the option of doing. Unlike a lot of people with kids in public schools, that's a whole other situation. Oh, yeah. Um, but you have to choose the way you're going to take risks and. You know, I think people like Dave and Java have been able to kind of like lock down more thoroughly and keep themselves even safer. Um, and I just I don't know if I can. And even though this whole process was shitty, like I'll probably take a risk and see my parents again at some point and see how that goes. Hopefully I mean, I don't think it's be better by then. I don't. Yeah, I don't think it's like uh, like with seeing parents and stuff like that. Like it's something that everyone I think is going to like break and do because it is like a type of contacts but there is like a responsible way to do it like you quarantine beforehand and because of the positive test you quarantine afterhand and like yeah. that's yeah literally all you're yeah, gonna do it's ex- it's accepting the qu- the consequences of the risk we took um and then figuring out if we are willing to do it again yeah like if i were to go uh or i did actually um visit my dad a, a couple weeks back and uh then got tested and tested clean and have not gone out to visit friends or go to protests or whatnot just because it's been harder and harder to get tests. And so the reality is in order for me to be responsible and do something like that, I have to quarantine before and quarantine after because that's the only response to like a testless environment that I know to keep everyone around me safe. But yeah, it's just like a reality where it's like, if I want to see my dad, Or like, for instance, my friend Julian, his dad's in a like a nursing home and they're doing really well with like tests there. But if you visit your person, your uh, your family member in person um, and even if it's outside and masked, uh, they're not allowed to leave their room in the nursing home for two weeks after that. They have to have like meals brought to them from the cafeteria and everything. And that's just the exchange to see people. And keep everybody else safe. So he like had lunch with his dad and his dad was like, well, so this is the last time I'm going to get to have lunch outside for two weeks. And it was like, oh, that's what you got to see your son, I guess. That's the shitty part of the damn pandemic. I mean, I guess the the one positive note is that weeks after all the protests where a lot of people were wearing masks, here's a very pro mask message. Like there, there was, there's been a lot of studies to see if there would be a spike and you will hear a lot of right wing rhetoric saying there is, but there has not been right. Like mass groups can be around each. I mean, protesting in on paper was a bad idea for stopping COVID. Let's be quite. Frank, um, and if you- there was a point where I had my mask on and I was laying down in the street and I laid on the bottom of somebody's shoe and I'm like, oh, this, this is, is just not what you do for COVID. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's gross. That's, that's the last thing times. I want to touch my face is somebody else's bottom Pandemic of the shoe. shoe. Um, yeah. But you know, there wasn't a wide spread, so it's like. I I do think that everyone who listens to the show is really intelligent and knows how to navigate this and risk it. Unfortunately, it's a matter of risk management, not a matter of following the rules and getting out the other end. It sucks. It just fucking sucks. But I think I, I believe in intelligence. I believe in people doing the right thing. I think we see a lot of bad people 
Uh, and Twitter and Facebook have a way of uh, making it seem like there are so many of these types of people, like the photographic evidence of people being bad and maskless and and COVID parties and all these viral things that pe- literally viral um, that people do. Like it just seems really bad. But I know that the people who listen to this show and the people on this podcast are very responsible, and I believe in in that risk management. It's hard. But um, also, maybe we can stay in is, and watch things like that we recommend on this podcast. I think the divide really is like a population thing, to go back to what you were saying in our first segment, because I like my new city. I've been here for five years. I like my like city council representative. I enjoyed voting for her. I like our governor because I used to know him back in high school, and I think he makes Humble, like good decisions. Yeah, no, it doesn't matter. Wait, were, are you the liking, same? The liking your- liking the governor in Colorado right now is not a brag at any. It's like a <laughs> humble admission of guilt. Are you the same age as the governor of Colorado? No, no. He we worked. He worked at a program called Leaders Challenge that I did in high school because I he was, was the guy who bought alcohol minority. for all the high schoolers that Dave. Yeah, right? that's, uh, yeah, exactly. Now, now we're going to be in the Denver Post. Thanks, Patches. <laughs> um, but every time I go. Uh, no, the Altoids Mints uh, tin. Uh, every time I go out, even if it's grocery shopping, which I'm still afraid to do, because even though we have a like state, uh, statewide mandated mask policy now, uh, they have to tell people to enforce it, and people will argue with whoever is trying to enforce it Ugh. at the grocery store, which just makes me feel uncomfortable. And then if I go out for, you know, my beer or my pot or my things that are my mental health uh, stabilizers in this world currently, I walk past bars that have like indoor seating and misters on the outside and the misters are blowing into the indoor seating. And I'm like, I thought indoor seating was out. And then some of them are in the streets like you guys are talking about, but also serving people that aren't masked. It's just, it's, I think David and I might be faced with maskless people in areas where we we (laughs) used to. Yeah, no, it's just like every, every time I go out now, uh, 50% of the people I see are not masked. No, I only see it. I only see it to an alarming degree on like certain avenues and restaurants, uh, like DeKalb Avenue is a row of restaurants that I love that I have not been able to go to for a very long time for obvious reasons. But recently with the outdoor dining policies, they have been hosting a lot of eaters who have been eating virtually on top of each other with no mask. That's where it's alarming. But by and large, I think that in terms of social shaming and things of that nature, uh, I have it better in New York than someone would in Colorado just because this feels like a really... Uh, liberal enclave where everyone is is doing their their best and falling. It is crazy they're, they're, though that it's, it has to be a liberal enclave to get yeah, masks. There aren't right, like it's not a political you thing. Yeah, you don't necessarily fear that if you stop someone in the middle of a crowded supermarket aisle and ask them to wear a mask that they would pull a gun on you, and that probably traces back to New York's gun laws. But um, it is something that you know I. Contrary to what it may have sounded like in an earlier segment, I am not yelling at people because I am an introvert and a coward uh, when at least not on this <laughs> podcast. But uh, I would certainly be a lot sooner to do that, um, especially when I have my baby out. Not that, you know, kids are, are uh, as in danger as adults. Although when we talk about people sending kids back to school, it's so fucking... Ugh. 
triggering to me that, that we talk about it like, you know, kids have shown not to have uh, as deleterious effects from the virus, but it completely discounts the fact that kids are just as capable of spreading the virus as adults are. And yeah, and of course, many kids live with school. really old family uh, members, not just their young parents. Right. And also their parents are enough. I mean, like the fact that and they like live a lot of old people work in adults. schools. Right. Of course. Um, but you know, those bad, those conversations are almost exclusively being held in bad faith, uh, because people would rather live in the denial of not look, having look, to look, have look, a look, look, look. I mean, we're really worried about COVID-19 here, but here's the thing too. Uh, earlier tonight, I saw that Katie, um, admitted that she likes Mary Poppins returns. And I, I mean, no. we've or, talked no, about look, there's COVID-19, but then they're showing that movie discussed. to kids. <laughs> no, it, it's true. In, in a week of like truly, like there were moments this week where it felt even more acutely than, than ever in pr- Trump's uh, administration so far that democracy was collapsing in front of our eyes. I would say that this was almost the most horrifying thing that I saw. It was several tweets really? in a thread. Mary Poppins? I thought this is not a political I'm issue. I'm certain Katie. we this had this conversation in 2018. America came together to lock down. To lock out Mary Poppins returns from the narrative. <laughs> uh, but that's not what you Can watch. I say that we watched Coco again for the first time in a while? Uh, the movie's amazing. Coco, good. The movie is Perfect. Yeah, we watched it for like a year straight. I'm sure I discussed on the show, and then we've been on a long break, and it came back in. Uh, what if it turns out that Mary great. Poppins Returns is warding off the coronavirus because the virus hates so much that it refuses to come into your house, and that's why your kids and you it's have kind of like the end of I Mars have not Attacks. Watched Mary Poppins Return. I have not watched Mary Poppins Returns it's in the top joke of, <laughs> of COVID. <laughs> Katie, what? So you've been watching Coco. What, well, let's let's steer back Coco. to our pandemic check-in and, and eventually end the podcast. Actually, but. speaking of Limelight Miranda projects, uh, the new Magic School Bus on Netflix we've brought back into the rotation. Uh, it's very good. It's I don't remember the original Magic School Bus that well, but it seems very much in line with the tradition of Magic School Bus. And I think Charlie is just now old enough to kind of get into it and like understand like lava and magnets and like other Earth and like environmental sciencey stuff uh super solid kid if you understand for, magnets he's, he's already smarter than icp yeah he's a juggalo is, the bets of be the leader of the juggalos soon yeah lead, i don't understand Charlie that at be all. leader of the juggalos <laughs> uh yeah this is our in- attempts at homeschooling while we are continue to be uh quarantined from daycare so we're just watching Magic Wait, School Bus what does that have to do uh, with lin-manuel miranda he sings the theme song it's oh. very um is it listenable? very minor participation uh yeah, it's the Magic School Bus theme song. I don't know. It's it's totally. I, actually, no. I have heard. I have watched a lot of kids shows on Netflix that have completely abysmal theme songs. So I'm going to put it on the on the there good end. What, you, what were you asking, David? Seen, uh, I haven't seen a frame of it, but the, that show Central Park on oh, Apple I TV. I watched a little bit of it. As a no. big Bob's Burgers fan, I, I was there. After, uh, as as longtime consistent listeners will know, uh, I now follow Josh Gad on Twitter, uh, and he is constantly retweeting Central Park content. Uh, and other David Diggs starred in a recent episode singing a song with Search Party lead and I believe Clinton Hill resident John Early. Amy uh, Mann wrote a song for the show. The show has some big Wait, cred. Is it, is it good? No, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> um, I did not make it after the second episode. I just I found it's a, it's a, like a full fledged musical. It really it really feels like uh, this was the show that cast Kristen Bell as a as a young mixed race woman. Uh, not a good. Uh, 
something like that. I, I still not a show. It, but, uh, we're supposed to be talking about things that we are anyway. watching here. We're, now we're yeah, talking what, about something we're Patches, Patches, what are you? What are you watching? Wait, can I segue into Amy Mann? Uh, I, I guess I feel like we've heard some some Rick Scott and a book about you, so I'm going to talk. <laughs> I'm a little worried. Yeah, but w- wait, are you? Did you listen well, to? Amy I Man? It, was, it was really only a matter of time before I had to say, you know, I had to mention what I was watching, and I figured that the segue would be uh, okay. You okay, go for the it. Moment. Um, I, I have been, uh, there are some magical pockets of time every year, um, a season, if you will, when the pay cable channels will play Magnolia 24 hours a day. And I have, uh, as I am wont to do, watched Magnolia probably four times start to finish in the last seven What's days. What's it on right now? It's on one of the HBO. I only get HBO and Showtime, so it's on like one of the HBOs. Like if it's uh, on HBO Max, although our movie's playing on HBO, no, it's definitely on not HBO Max. Okay, but Magnol- Magnolia is peak. You want to come into it wherever fate happens to allow mm. you to. It's not, it's not uh, the kind of movie I go out of my way to hit play on, but I've seen the movie more times than I would care to count because I mean it goes back to the days of it being on Stars Two, which twenty years ago would adhere to a drive-in movie theater-like schedule where they would religiously play the same movies constantly, same four movies over and over and over again for a week and then swap them out. Uh, and I would watch Magnolia. I'm sure I've talked about it on this podcast before, you know, 10, 12 times a week. Um, but I, uh, Amy Mann's soundtrack for that remains a thing of genius. Um, but I, I have been struck, always struck, one of my favorite performances in all of film. And it's a movie that contains probably more than one of them, but always goes to Philip Baker Hall. Uh, who, for whatever reason, he's not playing a particularly good person. And, um, you know, I think at the end of the movie turns out to, to be worse than you want to believe for most of the running time. But it's just, even in spite of that, it's just such a tender and human performance of this guy who's dying and, and has sort of forgotten the harm he's inflicted upon his daughter, sexually abusing her when she was younger, um, and is, is trying to make peace with whatever part of him remain i mean it's, i just think that while a game who is hosting that game show what do kids know uh which looks totally unwatchable with the great ricky jay uh man what a, what a thing i've also watched uh i watched aliens because uh, alisa is continuing her kick of watching the classic action movies of the 80s and 90s and uh, i am now ready to after my umpteenth viewing of aliens um ready to declare personally anyway that it is inferior to alien. I remember there being some ambiguity in my head about this over the years. Uh, and I can now say to my taste anyway, conclusively alien over oh, aliens, yeah. which is not this aliens. The same way Terminator movie. over Terminator too. Sure. Oh, I agree with that as well. Mm, uh, no, I don't agree with the second one. I think that I, and I say this is like a, a James Cameron acolyte, but the technology, as much as he is able to use these confined sets to, to work some magic, um, and the Queen Alien and Ripley and Bill Paxton game over, man, and all that great stuff. Um, and the extended edition is better. I, I just don't think the technology was quite there to support the vision that James Cameron is trying to force into that movie. Uh, and it ends up feeling perversely a little bit small. Um, even though it bum rushes you with aliens as soon as they get to LB426, Alien being a perfect movie. There are, of course, only four Alien movies in the quadrilogy, Alien, Aliens, Prometheus, and Alien Covenant, uh, the only four movies that have ever been made in the extended Alien franchise. Um, and I- <laughs> Let the record show, I said, I'm hesitant to let you talk about Amy Mann. 
Oh. Now we're here. I mean, well, you know, <laughs> those aliens need to wise up. Some people have <laughs> aliens to wise up. We need to talk about what is an alien movie and what isn't an alien movie. No, I think we we decided I'm done, right? I mean, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I don't. I'm kind of curious. Did did your did your wife like aliens? She did. I mean, I think uh, you know it would it would be surprising if she didn't enjoy the movie it's a great movie um and she liked alien well enough to, to want to watch it um i well, it's had, like you watch alien and then it, she actually gives birth and then she watched aliens which is super so mother-centric I'm really glad that you put it that way because i had been you know i showed her alien uh when she was three months pregnant as sort of a very clear like this is what you have to look forward to <laughs> Um, this is a movie about fatherhood and uh, among many other things. And the rule that I thought we had agreed upon was that we wouldn't watch aliens until she was pregnant with our second, uh, and presumably final child. Um, and, uh, if we're lucky enough to have another kid, but that is going to be a few years down the road. And, uh, she jumped the gun and we decided that was an arbitrary rule. So, well, for your next child, next and final child, you do have Alien versus Predator Requiem, which is the only <laughs> alien movie where the alien attacks no, a pregnant woman. I don't. I, <clears throat> it really comes full circle. I feel like if you watch Alien versus Re- Predator Requiem, which is truly one of the worst things I've ever seen in a movie theater, they blow I, up a whole. Col- they, they drop a nuke on Colorado, which is why I, I always do. remember. I once saw a man get stabbed in the chest in the middle of a movie theater, and it did not come close to be the horror show of Alien. <laughs> in the middle of man on fire in the, the AMC 25. And then the Jesus. manager. Came of course it was the AMC 25. There was a really long debate uh, involving all of the people in this 1025 or whatever it was PM showing as to whether or not they should restart the movie. Cause that's what they had to do is back on film in that day. Maybe movie theaters. Or, uh, <laughs> anyway. Um, I, but, rescind, uh, I rescind I being disappointed because I'm, I'm I, I, actually happy where that ended up. I just want to say, don't show if you're pregnant, don't show anyone Alien Perspective. Also in other circumstances. <laughs> but maybe we'll watch Alien Covenant if and when that time comes. Because Alien it has a nice Mary Poppins. It has a nice uh, family vibes. <laughs> yeah. Returns. Returns. All right, Patches, what have you been watching? Well, Dave, I had a question for you. A quick question. Yeah. Did yeah. you play Paper Mario yet? I did. I, yes, I'm... Uh, no video game. Video I'm on game the second, talk. Video game talk. I'm on the second Volumental, uh, the water Volumental. Oh, wow. Okay, you made some progress. Um, pa- Paper Mario go. being the latest installment of the Mario RPG-ish franchise. I guess it lost that name at some point and just became Paper Mario. This is... Uh, well, I lost the playstyle in this game. Yeah. So, Katie, um, Mario, he's a... Uh, He's a plumber and um, mm. he, Italian plumber it's, invented it's, by Japanese it's, men. It's it's a me, Mario. That's right. That's yeah, right. But imagine it. if he ah. was made of paper and that's what mm. paper Mario I'm is interested. about. And uh, in paper Mario, uh, an origami king has come to the land of, of paper mushroom kingdom and folded everyone up. And it's up to Mario to unfold everyone. Um, I like these games because, well, I'll play any Mario game. Probably uh, number one. And number two, I like the other Mario RPG games. I like the battle systems and I like collecting things. And I don't know. I find joy in grinding in the Paper Mario way. Uh, this game is both miserable and I can't stop. Uh, the, 
the um, Java thinks it's cute. It's cute. So she will she will watch me play. And the designs are fun. Hear, Everyone's made a paper. And hear my deep sigh when I have to go into a battle. <laughs> every time mm. or just like this fucking puzzle again so this would actually this game seems like a game to give to a child who needs to like advance to the next level of of puzzle thinking because it's ra- it's rather Ooh. difficult you spend a lot of time walking around a paper land collecting coins and freeing toads uh who are stuck in the ground it seems like too simple and it, it's almost annoyingly simple because it has, then you have a sidekick who just doesn't shut up he just tells you everything to do if if someone was standing next to you and be like pick that up do this do that and he just can't stop talking and i kept thinking like this is actually i was thinking about charlie here i'm thinking about kids kids should definitely okay. play this game one day you, you gotta get a switch here for this child this child needs to get plugged in needs to get off Fortnite immediately and start playing Paper Mario. Charlie needs to play off? Are you implying Charlie's playing Fortnite? No, I'm saying as soon as he picks up a Switch, his brain is automatically plugged into Fortnite. You got to get him off right away. Oh, okay. Exactly. Full body. Uh, but yeah, so half the game is super simple, and then half the game, as Dave could probably attest, has these puzzles where you you fight people and you have to wind them into different combinations in under thirty seconds and. Uh, it's Mensa level uh, expertise required to do this stuff. It's ridiculous. It's it's insane. It's a it's a spatial it's puzzle. It's not fun. So it's that's that's the biggest problem. Is it's not fun, uh, and it, it's now at the point where like my first boss battle took like twenty minutes. And my water volumental one, I had to stop to come record the podcast. So I'm like, I don't, this could go on for an hour. I don't know. I don't know how this puzzle system works. Uh, I mean, the above world stuff is really fun. It's really cute. There are uh, holes in the world that you could only cover up by throwing confetti over them. And Mario makes the same face, which is like... Every time he throws the confetti. Uh, for for and people who are listening only and don't get to see Dave, he did the exact face that Mario makes. It's just yeah, open I've been, jaw. I've been watching it a lot. But yes, the it is so weird to swap out like an RPG-based battle system to an unlevelable puzzle system. Katie gets it. And still, and still have the same amount of encounters. Katie knows. Yeah, Katie, Katie you Katie, understand. Katie knows all these buzzwords. Okay, and here and to wrap myself up, my uh, complete other end of the spectrum, I was matching Paper Mario with I watched uh, Cleo from five to seven, a film that I have never seen. I have never seen an Agnes Varda film from what I could tell. Um, uh, Agnes Varda originally intended it to be Paper yes. Cleo from five to seven. <laughs> yes, it was yeah. weird that she was uh, bouncing up and down, hitting. Question mark boxes. Cleo from five to seven, the RPG, but they couldn't quite get the five battle to seven mechanics. Stars. Um, uh, have have people seen this? Mallow, movie? remember Mallow? Obviously, Sorry. David has seen this movie. Katie and Dave, have you seen Cleo from five to seven? I've not. I'm aware of its existence. I will recommend it to both of you as existentialist viewing for this time, where we might be all on edge and scared. It's about a um, kind of a pop star. She's famous. Waiting for a COVID test. Yeah, she yeah. She's waiting to find out if she has cancer. Um, and it takes place in real time. She's walking around the streets of of Paris, um, just feeling the dread of what could happen. And all of the men in her life are, of course, misogynistic and and horrible, and brushing her off and taking advantage of her looks and her voice. And they just want, want, want from her. And meanwhile, no one will take her seriously when she's like, "I could be sick. I could have cancer." And this is all just weighing down on her for an hour and a half. But of course, it's uh, 
kind of French New Wave. So it's like super dreamy. It sounds like a Sartre novel. It, it, I mean, it, like nausea as as a cancer. I mean, thing. it kind of it kind of is. It's a bit more. I wouldn't call it fluffy, but it's it is still entertaining. Um, the the kind of new wave style double takes and whirlwind camera movements. I mean, it's still light on its feet. She gets to sing a song. There's like a silent film spoof in the middle of it. That's really that uh, Jean Luc Godard makes a cameo in. Uh, there's a lot of entertaining bits to this movie, and you know, I think that a lot of people can be scared of black and white and French new wave because it seems like film school bullshit and it's can feel a little snobby but this movie it just feels really contemporary it's it's uh it, it just has a hop in its step even when by the end of it she's just like miserable she's dealing with death and life and what is her purpose and she's surrounded by mirrors that's a big image in the movie she keeps seeing her kind of beautiful self and her vapid, vapid life uh, just staring back at her and not and and I, I don't know it's a film of the moment accidentally i think as we kind of wait to see what's at the end of this tunnel for us are we doing the right things are we asking the right questions and uh coincidentally too i think i recommended cachet eons ago on a quarter quell because i thought it was the film we watched yeah we watched it for a quarter yeah it was the film of of the trump era is that what or the moment was that the 2016 election movie where um i think it was about like dealing with reality and no and not trying to brush the past under the rug um and 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 in the case of cachet um the haneke film it is it is concentrated on the the algerian war um and and which decades passed and of course uh cleo five to seven is dealing directly like the the algerian war is happening and she meets a soldier um who's bringing her back messages of the war and all this death all this pointless death and it really explodes her point of view into the kind of macro like if she's thinking about having cancer in the beginning now she's thinking about like just death in the in the biggest scope possible uh, i thought it was a really marvelous movie as many 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 people have said but sometimes uh, watching these classics can be very difficult to like sit down and actually i'm gonna watch a classic movie now but it's a good timing uh, because i can't remember exactly when it's coming out but sometime in the next couple of months Criterion is releasing the complete Agnes Varda box yeah. set, which uh, what's the collector question for you, David? What's the next Agnes Varda film that I should watch now that I've seen Cleo from five to seven? I mean, I think once you've seen one of her foundational narrative films, you should check out one of her documentaries, maybe the cleaners and I, uh, or if you want to just skip to maybe the most accessible of those films, the more recent faces places, uh, which it does a nice little bit of self-mythologizing to help within the scope of an Agnes Varda movie contextualize her iconography and her legend and what she was doing, certainly her relationship with Jean-Luc Godard. Um, but you really can't go wrong with Agnes Varda, who's, I swear we talked about one of her short films about the Black Panthers on this mm-hmm. podcast. Yeah, I watched it on the Past the Criterion Paywall a couple weeks right. ago. Yeah, I mean, she she has uh, her fingerprints on so many different areas of film in the 20th century. Uh, you owe it to yourselves to watch Agnes Varda movies. And I did. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. 
I'm Matt Patch's senior editor at Polygon, trying to work hard, even though I'm not a writer. I have a lot of other things to do, but it's pretty easy for me. I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Damn, you really took that one hard. <laughs> and we have a website, fightinginthewarm.com. Where you can listen to the episodes and you can share those links with your friend, your socially distant friends. Uh, I'm David Ehrlich. I'm struggling, uh, you know, as hard as I think anyone has it in, in the world right now. I think it could be said without question to uh, to write with all this existential panic and the burden of having a small yet lovable young child uh, and you can uh, reach all of us oh wait I didn't even say we could reach me why would you want to reach me other than to complain which you can definitely do on our iTunes page Fighting in the War Room please leave us a review um, you can also find me on Twitter at Dave Ehrlich and on IndieWire uh, if I am able to find the time to finish any of my articles this week uh, leave us a review on iTunes Fighting in the War Room Hey, it's me, David the Seven. You can follow me on Twitter at DS7E. You can also find me on the Storm, a Lost Rewatch podcast. And if you head over to patreon.com slash Storm of Spoilers, I know, I know that's me asking for money. That's not what I want to tell you about, though. If you donate the lowest possible level, we've been doing bonus episodes called Feels Like the First Time, where we introduce people, like David introduced his wife to aliens, to movies that they haven't seen. And this week, Neil Miller and I got to show Joanna Robinson, Dr. No, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, and Live and Let Die. Both episodes of those podcasts are available only in those Patreon feeds. Check it out. Uh, And I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com. I wrote a story this week, actually. I mean, I did an interview with someone who has a podcast about Tracy Lords and the porn industry called Once Upon a Time in the Valley. That's pretty fascinating. Um, And I'm there on the Little Gold Men podcast where we are talking this week about Tenet and award season and about I May Destroy You, the HBO series that I think David and I at least are watching and we'll talk about on the show at some point in the future. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H, and we're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where you can talk to us about whatever, or you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of the dawning realization there won't be 2020 theatrical movies, what was the last thing you saw in a theater full of people? Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. Mm-hmm.